Kim and Jim and Kurt, and how important it is for us to hear those stories and to know what the opportunities are for us to serve. April 2 through 9, you say, you have two or three more places. Hmm, I see some candidates out here. Listen, if you would love to see a city full of 1957 Chevrolets, Havana, Havana. Uh, but you'll see a lot more than that. Uh, you ought to take that up in a hurry. And if you don't have the money to do it, find somebody to beg from. It's amazing how you can beg for world missions. People respond. You know, to get you on the field. You need to pray and give and go. Now let's take just a few minutes uh, to finish half, no, not half the text, about uh, one-fifth of the text uh, that is before us. I want us just to look at one more verse. We've already read it. Look with me at Luke 10. And uh, here's verse 3. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now, we've seen that the Christian mission is every Christian's mission. We've seen that it's a team mission. You have to be paired up with people. God's working through multiple. That's the reason Presbyterian sessions are plural. They have more than just one. We don't have bishops, sole bishops. We believe in partnership and teamwork. It's the reason that we make friends with people around the world and have missionary partners, and we go in partnership because it's a team ministry. We've seen it's a global ministry. We've seen it's a prayer ministry. Now, fifthly, and this will be lastly for this morning, we're going to see that the Christian mission is a costly mission. Jesus says, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Please contemplate those words for just a moment with me. Jesus said, I know what I'm doing. I know you're a lamb. I know they're wolves. And I'm sending you out. Now, last time I checked, wolves eat lambs. And Jesus said, I'm sending you out into a hostile world to people who want to destroy you. In other words, I'm sending you to your enemies. I'm sending you to my enemies. And I know what they'll do to you. And I'm sending you out. I know what I'm doing. I'm sending you out to die. We in the West get anesthetized. We get confused on this because we have lived in a relatively safe condition for centuries. The last big conflict on our soil was the Civil War. That's been a long time ago, 150 years. We had before that, of course, the War of 1812, and we had the Revolutionary War. But it's been a long time since we've actually experienced war on our own soil. And furthermore, from the beginning of the European colonization here, there's never really been broad persecution of Christians in a way that affected your physical life and usually not your economic life. As a matter of fact, here it's usually been to your economic advantage. And today some health and wealth preachers like Joel Osteen and others 
will tell you it's still to your advantage economically to be a Christian. So generally speaking, we think if you trust in Jesus, your income's going to be better, your life's going to be better, marriage is going to be better, your job will go better, everything will be better. And what we fail to contemplate is the fact that in the majority world, that's not true. It's just the opposite. And when the general assembly of the whole worldwide church were ever to get together, you'll find that we have the minority report that things are great. Oh, there are a few threats, you know, political correctness and all kinds of things going on. But generally speaking, things are going great for the Christians here. Come on over and join us. You can be free, have political freedom. You can go to the church of your choice. You can make a living here. You'll have friends. That's the minority report. And if you go back for 2,000 years around the world, particularly you'll find that's the minority report. Uh, at Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church or First Presbyterian Church, Augusta, or Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis, these three Presbyterian churches, you'll find placarded on the wall, or in our case up near the ceiling, what we call the shields of the apostles. Are you aware of these things? These are the traditional, it's kind of like a coat of arms, you know, a family's coat of arms. Well, the apostles actually have these traditional shields, and on each shield is something there that reminds you of each one of the 12 apostles, uh, Paul uh, being the 13th, Matthias replacing Judas, and then Paul the 13th, and then if you want to add Stephen as the first martyr of the church, you could, we have 14 shields in our, up near our ceiling. It's very interesting when you look at those shields. Of course, you, you can expect on Paul's shield what you would see. You see an open Bible, and then there's a sword right over it. Why? Because tradition teaches us he was beheaded in Rome for his faith. You can imagine what Peter's shield would look like. You remember, tradition tells us that he was to be crucified for his faith, and he asked to be crucified upside down because he was unworthy to be crucified in the same way that Jesus was. Uh, on Andrew's, St. Andrew's shield, uh, you'll see a diagonal cross because tradition teaches us that he too, as he went into Europe and other places, was crucified for his faith. Philip also, on his shield, there, there are little loaves of bread, you know, because he's the one who brought the bread to Jesus to divide. But then there's a slender cross for Philip because tradition teaches us that as he went up into Asia Minor, he too was crucified for his faith. On Bartholomew's uh, shield are some three flaying knives because tradition teaches us that he was flayed alive and then drawn and quartered before he was uh, put to death because he was faithful to the gospel. Thomas's shield, of course, you can expect uh, there are three stones because tradition teaches us he went to India to preach the gospel and there he was stoned to death. You get the point. Don't need to go on. All of the apostles with the exception of John, who died in exile because of his faith on the Isle of Patmos. And he died of old age, apparently. But all the other ones were put to death for their faith. We live and breathe in an apostolic church, and virtually all of the apostles were put to death for their faith. Jesus sent them out as lambs 
among wolves. And you remember that Peter was concerned whether he could manage this because of his own previous failure. And in John 21, Jesus assures him, no, you, you'll be led where you don't want to go. You'll be, you'll be faithful to the end. You will face final martyrdom and you'll be faithful to the end. And we need to remember this. And if we look at the American missionary story, when you know, in hay, the Haystack uh, group, there were our first Protestant intentional foreign missionaries in the early, very early 19th century. Well, throughout the 19th century, we were sending missionaries. And, uh, you know, today we have what we call short-term missions. I mean, you know, you can go to Cuba for a week. In the 19th century, all missions were short-term missions because the average life expectancy was somewhere between 18 and 24 months. And if you've read David Calhoun's history of Presbyterianism in America and and Princeton Presbyterianism in particular, you'll read that in the 19th century, we sent waves of young men, waves, just like D-Day on the shores of, of France, who just wave after wave were put to death and who died of diseases. And then eventually you'll read some of them started to go to Philadelphia to medical school and learn how to treat some things, and they began to live a little longer. But in just in the 19th century, just 150 years ago, we were saying to our young men in the seminary, come and die. And they usually packed their belongings as they left for their missions work. They packed their belongings in a casket because they knew they would need the casket before too long. Ladies and gentlemen, this, this is our heritage. And so when we live in a day now where the evangelical church seems to be saying, we want to keep out these immigrants. They're taking our jobs. They're threatening our existence. We don't want to let any of them in. And that seems to be the dominant voice among evangelicals in this country. I just scratch my head and say, we're losing it. We're not being destroyed by Muslims. We're being destroyed by Christians who have lost their way completely and have forgotten why they're here. Do you understand that for the past 50 years, the largest group in America that's been converted and the biggest group of new Christians who have been planting churches are the Hispanic immigrants. That's the largest group of saved people for the past 50 years, and we want to keep them out. We just heard that 100 Muslims have been led to Christ right here. That's phenomenal. That should knock your socks off. And we want to prevent people who are not Christians from coming to this country. Oh, we don't want to go there, and we don't want them to come here either. It's a church that seems to have complete amnesia and who doesn't seem to be reading their Bible very much. I'm I'm not opposed to, in fact, I'm an advocate of Christians being involved in public policy. And I know public policy is far too complicated for preachers to devise. There are very few preachers who also spend enough time in public policy to know how to craft public policy. So I'm not pretending to be a politician. And I know it's complex. I'm just saying that the rhetoric and the passion that I'm hearing in the evangelical church has lost its mind and is endorsing people who are saying the opposite of what Jesus is saying in this text. That we are people who give our lives. We don't, when it comes to other religions, we don't take their lives. That's what they do. We give our lives 
for their salvation. We die so that they might live. This is the challenge in Christian mission. When James Calvert was going to the Fiji Islands in the 19th century, and of course he was being taken there on an English sailing vessel, and he wanted to get off in the Fiji Islands because he had understood that there was no Christian witness there. And the captain of the ship, the, the British captain, said to him, Mr. Calvert, do you understand if I let you off here? You're going to die because these people are cannibals. And James Calvert's response to him was famous. He said to him, Captain, it's okay. I died before I came. I've been crucified with Christ, says the Apostle Paul, and I no longer live. The life I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're baptized into the crucifixion of Jesus Christ when we are born again, just as we're baptized into his resurrection. We're brought into union with Christ every aspect of his being. So we die with him, knowing that we shall live with him. Do you remember how the Apostle Paul put it in Philippians chapter 3? He said, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And then he said, and I want to share in the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death so that somehow I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. We're not masochists. We don't like to beat ourselves up. We're not looking for more suffering unnecessarily. But we want to know Christ. And in knowing Him, of course, we know the power of the resurrection, the fullness of the Spirit. But the Holy Spirit leads us to live a crucified life. We've already died. We have no fear of death. There was a New Testament scholar named J.R. Maltby, and he said, in the New Testament, Jesus did three things for his disciples. He said they were completely fearless. They were absurdly happy. And they were in constant trouble. And I say of Christians, you know, we're kind of like tea bags. We, we're no good unless we're in hot water. And if you're not in hot water, if you're not experiencing hostility, if you don't find your comforts and conveniences at risk, I have to ask you, do you really, have you really taken up the cross and followed Jesus? He said, no one can follow me unless he denies himself, takes up his cross, the instrument of execution, and come and follow me. You know, in the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer, you'll find for funerals, if you have a prayer book, you'll find Romans 8, which is a very commonly popular text to be read at Episcopal funerals and Presbyterian funerals. And I've looked at the Book of Common Prayer, and I also looked at the 1906 Book of Common Worship. That's a Presbyterian liturgy. And noticed how Romans 8 is... Cited. And the question, you know, Paul says, 
You know, can we be separated from the love of God? No. And all these things were more than conquerors. But they, both those books of prayer and worship leave off these verses. verses. For we are sheep being led to the slaughter. That doesn't sound very good in a funeral, does it? But here's Paul's whole point. He's talking to people who are being slaughtered. And he's saying, don't think that your slaughter is a sign that you don't belong to him and that you've been separated from him. He says, au contraire, hop along, it's just the opposite. That when you're being martyred, that's the very sign that you do belong to him. Nothing can separate us from the love of God because we are sheep to be slaughtered. We're in a missions conference. We have, we have physical food and spiritual food. We're all being fattened like lambs for the slaughter. That's why we're here, to be fed, fattened, so we can go out and be slaughtered for the glory of God. Once again, we're not trying to commit suicide. We're just being realistic. Jesus said, I send you out as lambs among wolves. So in your workplace, if you're being marginalized because you're a believer, welcome to the church. Rejoice and be glad because the prophets were persecuted before you, said Jesus. Rejoice and be glad. The reason that we have 2.3 billion people who've never heard the word, the reason we have 6,000 ethno-linguistic groups that haven't been reached is David Platt says, the reason we don't have anybody there is these places are dangerous. All the easy ones have been taken. And all this left are the hard ones. So when did you think you were supposed to be engaged in world missions and you were supposed to survive? Where'd you get that idea? You didn't get it from the Bible. You didn't get it from Jesus. You got it from some 20th century, 21st century church that thinks we should survive. Now we know the church will the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church is going to be protected. But I'm talking about you individually. He sends us out as sheep among wolves. Let's go. You say, well, okay, how can I do it? Well, you can be faithful and bold in your witness, in your moral and spiritual lives where you are. And you can also sacrifice for the world. We give our time in prayer. We give our social life and our relationships to network for the mission around the world. It's on our mind. It's on the front of our mind. It's everything to us. And so you give your time, you give your energy, you give your heart, and you give your money. Do you realize we live in the wealthiest nation in the history of the world? And when you live in a wealthy nation, it does things to you. It changes your perspective. Just like our perspective got changed on how we're supposed to die for the mission, well, our perspective has been changed on how much convenience and comfort we deserve and what we should be aspiring to. The Bible says, give at least 10% of your possessions to the Lord. Bring it into the storehouse, into the church. But even evangelicals only give 3.5% of their income. 35 one-third of the requirement. It's just amazing. And we profess to follow Jesus. Liberal Christians give less than that, 2.5%. The average gift to anything charitable among Americans is 
percent. That's less than one percent. So let's just take the average Christian gift of two and a half percent. You realize that two cents out of a dollar of that gift goes to anything internationally. As a matter of fact, among Americans in general, only two percent of our charitable giving goes to anything international. So I'm not a mathematician, but I think that comes out to be five ten thousandths of our income goes to anything international. We're diseased. We're, we're like the frog boiling in the kettle. We've lost our minds. We've got to start giving again. And I mean giving generously. If you make an income equal to the poverty line in America, which for a family of four is somewhere around $25,000 a year, you're in the top 10% of wage earners in the world. If you make $50,000, and you look like some of you are making $50,000. If you make $50,000, you're in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. I realize that if you make $50,000, you don't think of yourself as wealthy at all. And in America, you're not. That's kind of the average income probably in Jacksonville, in Duval County, probably $50,000. But the rest of the world sees you as being very wealthy. And so 10% for us is just for kindergarten. So here in the wealthiest nation in the history of the world, we should be giving far more. I'll close with this story. Uh, when I became a Christian in New England, which is funny because I grew up in a Southern Baptist church in East Tennessee, but I didn't get converted until I got to Boston. I got converted in Boston. And in our little Presbyterian church, the pastor had three children, the youngest of whom was Down syndrome. His name is Eugene. Eugene now has already had his 50th birthday, but in those days, or maybe his 45th birthday, in those days, Gene was seven or eight years old. Gene loved to imitate his daddy. So every Sunday evening service, Gene would get to collect the offering. And he would do so in an interesting garb. His dad would often in the winter wear vests, and so Gene wanted to wear a vest, and he took his dad's big red vest, and it went down to his ankles. And he'd be wearing that vest, and so down the middle aisle would come Gene, Quam, down this side, and then Bill McKenzie, one of our deacons, right next to him. The two of them come up there and stand, and Roger, the pastor, would pray for the offering, and then they would go out and collect it, and Bill would collect on this side, and Gene would get down the middle aisle, and he'd collect on this side. Well, it was the Sunday evening service, and by the time you got to about where you are, you know, about the 10th row back, there were only two people in that pew. That was Ed and Mary Tenney. Dr. Ed Tenney was one of the pillars of the church. He was a senior citizen. He was an elder emeritus in our church. He was a very generous person. And Gene got to him and handed the plate to him. And I'm sure Ed and Mary gave generously in the morning so they didn't give in the evening. They just handed the plate back. Gene looked at the plate. He looked at the tennis and he went. <laughs> so you've never seen two old people scramble so fast in your life for bobby pins or ballpoint pins or safety pins or something. Put something in the plate. Get Gene off your case. And of course, the whole church just fell out. No one remembers anything that Roger preached on that night. It didn't matter. The one who had preached the message was Eugene Quam. And as you know, if you have Down syndrome children or someone you love does, they all, they're so sweet and endearing, and they often, they often communicate something about Christ that nobody else can communicate to us. 
And he did that night. And I've thought through the years, if Jesus were collecting the offering in our churches, how many times did he just hand it back to you and go, are you dying to yourself? Is there a cross in your pocketbook? Are you denying your privileges, your comforts, your conveniences? Are you laying your life down for the gospel ministry around the world? That's the calling. And nothing short of that will do. Because we're talking about the Lord of the universe and eternal life for his creatures. And so I bid you this very weekend, would you take your life in your hands before the Lord and say, Lord, I I want my life to be a great commission life. I want it to be my best answer to your calling. I want to die for the sake of the gospel. And here's what I think that means. And take it before the Lord in prayer. And even before we come to worship tomorrow, would you do that work this afternoon on the Sabbath Eve, the Lord's Day Eve, and come to church tomorrow prepared to die and to live? We don't have time for it, but at the end of this passage, in verses 17 through 24, you see that this is a joyful mission. It's interesting, and I think the only place in the New Testament, in verse 17, if you're looking at your text, The NIV says, Jesus, full of joy. It's the only place where Jesus has great joy. And what's his joy over? His disciples returning from the field. And his telling them that what gives him joy is that the untrained, the unlearned, the little children are believing. The Muslims are believing. The Hindus are believing. Oh yes, the wise of the world, they'll have nothing to do with it. But it's the the untrained and the young and the vulnerable who are loving Christ. And he says, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom he chooses to reveal him. And it's through this world mission that Jesus takes the greatest joy because salvation is being given to the little children around the world. Will you rejoice with him even as you lay your life down for him? Let us pray. Father, thank you for this costly mission to which you call us. It is worth all of it. And we confess that because of the privileges you've given us providentially in our own culture, we've forgotten this mission and its cost even though some of our great-grandfathers and great-great-grandmothers gave their lives for short-term mission and died, we now, Lord, ask you to renew in our hearts a deep desire to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, and to follow you, all for the glory of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior. Amen.